your host, CC, and I'm joined by my co-host, a man who's got a Tinder date, Mason Clark. That's not true. Oh. <laughs> and sorry, sorry for your loss. And Abe Stein. <laughs> Abe, you uh, won yeah. it. You won a uh, classic and moved recently. Um, no, I for the real fans of the show, this is Jonathan's Connect's apartment that you're seeing in the background here. Uh, he was on it's no, not too long ago. This this year for a good episode, but I'm I'm spending spending the holiday cheer with him. I mean, you know, we're both both Jewish men who do not have much to do on Christmas exactly. So have some friends over, uh, myself included, and he was gracious enough to let me use the setup to record the podcast. So. Was Hanukkah dope this year? It was a it was a pretty good Hanukkah. I had like. Normally, we do like lockers in my family, like maybe, I don't know, like two or three nights out of it. My mom this year was like, no, lockers all eight nights. I was like, you're the best, mom. So, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. had mad It was the best. For the, for the listeners who might not know, what is that? Oh, it's like a potato pancake. It's like a, it's like a potato starch, um, shredded potatoes, onions. Uh, you just kind of like get the shredded potatoes, make a little, little potato pancake, and then you fry it in olive oil on both sides. Fantastic with applesauce. Uh, nice. Definitely the best way to eat them. Yeah, I got offered to go somewhere to have those uh, last year, and I didn't go. But I've actually never had it. But everybody, all my all my Jewish friends are like they're the best. So I'll have to get you a recipe. Yeah, they're just that's, good. That's definitely, yeah, that's that's an always improving moment for me. I gotta try some this. <laughs> All right. Uh, no, we're not going to do always improve this week because it's our reflecting on 2023 episode, and some of that will be into the the main topic. Um, uh, but if you want to support the show directly, uh, you know, going into 2024, head on over to patreon.com/ccmtg. You can ask Patreon questions. You get early access to the shows when we go live. Um, you you know the live stream. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the other stuff. Uh, you, the twenty-five dollar tier gets you can get T-shirts. Um, there's 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 some stuff over there, so check it out. Uh, and then don't forget to check out our sponsor, uh, Untapped.gg. Uh, use the affiliate code in the uh, description of this episode wherever you're listening or watching. Uh, they just launched a new feature. That's why I wanted to talk about it this week. Where when you're looking at a deck, whether it's draft or um, or um, constructed, when you're constructing your mana base, it will tell you your percentage of each uh, of each mana symbol and like what percentage of your, your mana base it is. And it's pretty dope. So uh, it was, was really interesting when I was looking at standard mana bases being like, oh, I'm actually maybe a little bit low on this source. So. That's gonna expose all the bad mana bases you copy paste off of. Uh, Dude, for real though, right? Fire through Twitter when you're like, "How did I ever cast any spells when I was playing this deck?" <laughs> yeah. All right, yeah. so th- this one is our reflection episode. So we're gonna take a look back through through the lens of 2023 um, and kind of go over some things. Uh, Mason, why don't you start us off? Why don't you give us kind of a a summary of 2023 and MTG for you, buddy? I mean, 2023 is definitely the weirdest year for Magic for me ever. I started the year off by working on Modern Horizons for the first two months and to then kicking off coaching as my full-time job. And it's been way better than I ever thought it all could have gone. From you know the beginning of the year to now, it has all been a whirlwind and been very 
fulfilling and awesome. And I don't want to spend too much time talking about coaching, but like that has gone, the demand has been way higher than I ever thought it could be. And it went from a thing where I was like, Oh, you know, maybe I'll work like, you know, 25, 30 hours a week on stream working Twitch, uh, Twitch and along with coaching and stuff and other things. And to the point where I just can't really do that and be a human, which is a blessing. I'm definitely thankful for that. Um, but the weirdest part about it really somehow weirder than all of that is how little magic I got to play, you know, with the move towards doing commentary for NRG, I don't really go and play their events. I commentate them. The SCGs have all been kind of far from me. We're not worked out weekend-wise. And then with the RC system, I just haven't had to play much Magic, honestly. You know, I uh, skipped California because I just gotten back from everything and just decided to save the money and focus on, you know, jump-starting coaching and doing full-time that. I played Atlanta last year, Atlanta this year, and Dallas. I put a couple of the Apex events I drove up to, and that's it. So when I look back on the year, it's a very weird year where my life, in a lot of ways, is more magic than it's ever been. But when it comes to touching the cards, it's the least amount of magic I've ever done, which is a really weird uh, situation. So that's kind of my summary in a short form on 2023. Do you... Are you I, I gotta ask. I, I guess we can get into it, yeah. but... It makes you pretty happy. Like you're in a good spot. In yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I'm really happy. I mean, like, just I mean, just like last year, I knew the year was ending and beginning with like a dream coming true. That no matter, you know, for those who don't know, like my once in life is to get into game design, and magic is obviously something I care a lot about and something I would love to work on, and something where I, you know, I've done the interview process before, and like I knew that no matter what happens, where my life goes, I will always one have an experience where I got to work like in a, in game design for like, you know, two months, really hands-on, really craft cards, really work the experience. And then no matter what happens in life, I got to help with magic, which is something that's given me my friends, now my livelihood and so many amazing memories. So no matter what, I am hopeful that I helped magic out. And that is very exciting and fulfilling and rewarding and incredibly a heavy burden to wear that I was very excited to take up that weight. And then when it comes to coaching, in my life, I've always sort of felt like I want to help people and I want to help them improve at what they are and learn. And so when I was early, like younger in life, I should say, I really thought about being like a teacher or something like that. Then I kind of learned how much money they make. And I was like, oh, well, you know, like it's kind of rough. It, it, it's messed up. Teachers should get paid infinitely more. There is awful. That's the thing I will go to the grave fighting for above like a lot of things. The very few things are higher than that to my mind. And so teachers are underpaid and it's awful. And it's like, well, I don't know. So I just kind of like never really pursued it the way I wanted to. And getting to do coaching full time is something that is like very fulfilling and like helping people understand their hobby more and letting people feel like, oh, wow, I get this thing and this thing I loved, I now understand better. I'm having more fun because I understand it. Even when I lose, I see like where I could be improving and just enriches their experience. And I think giving, people their outlet in such stressful hard times having more fun with that is very fulfilling for me personally so i really like that and then the commentary stuff has been great you know we had some unfortunate stuff with energy this year where like you know basically one and a half events didn't get filmed due to like circumstances outside our control and did everything we could to do it but i've really liked that and i'm hopeful to do more commentary stuff in 2024 uh you know expanding beyond that so it's been really great. And, you know, I, I feel very fulfilled in everything. And I wish I could just play 
a few more events because I do like playing Magic a lot, especially Paper Magic. I don't love playing Magic Online the same way I love playing Paper, but, you know, beggars can't be choosers. What about you, Abe? How was your 2023? Why don't you give us a, a breakdown of the world of Abe Stein? First, I just got to say that, Mason, I, I feel like either the universe or energy is conspiring against me to get me on coverage with you again. Because both the events you're speaking to, where like we lost one and a half events, both of them are times we're slated to commentate together. And we're just too powerful to be seen on, on Twitch. Uh, if, if, if we do more commentary, it's going uh, to be game over for a bunch of mid-level commentary teams. That's all I got to say. Shots fired. Pew, pew. Um, yeah, so uh, <laughs> 2023 was a really, really good year in Magic for me. Um, let's see. We start from, uh, like, right at, towards the end of um, 2022, I, like, kind of got the, the Monk of Mac getting back into having time to compete um, in RCs and, like, the RSQ level. Um, I'd maybe played, like, two or three RSQs for Atlanta, and I, like, had, a top, like, some top eights and a top four and just, like, couldn't convert. Um, and then I was actually able to give it a go in the modern season. And, uh, thankfully, uh, you know, Spike there got to play uh, San Diego. And it was really, um, you know, coming into the year, focusing on knuckling down my process, um, being like, okay, how am I going to find a way to use my limited time to still come up with playing the best decks possible and having the best plans possible. Um, and thankfully Pioneer made it pretty easy with Mono Green, and that gave me a lot more room to kind of expand my range beyond Hammer in Modern for the season that came. Um, so I was just, you know, really getting into that and working on that through most of the first half of the year until um, Dallas, where I, uh, you know, got to qualify for the Pro Tour again after... I guess it was, I did the math, I think it was like a six year or seven year absence from the PT um, to really like hit gold again in that, uh, in that regard felt really great to affirm that, you know, like even in a time where I have, I'm giving even less to magic and more in other aspects of my life out of necessity um, and out of like the position I'm in, I'm still able to compete and perform at that level was just a really, um, you know, gratifying and affirming feeling of like, okay, I still like have it any doubts I have about where I'm at in magic or like, you know, where my, my paths are. It's like, it was really, really good to feel that, but that kind of led to a weird situation where once I had deferred my invite, um, because I just couldn't make it to Spain on like six weeks notice or whatever with a job and, uh, like needing to take time off and, and everything. Um, and then the timing and scheduling of things, meaning the PT, there's no PT four, there's just worlds. And so, like, I still haven't played that Pro Tour I qualified for six months ago, like, more than six months ago to the day now. Um, it just created this eight-month gap. Where, and, even, and even Atlanta, which I played, you know, the other weekend, is I couldn't qualify for anything there either. I was already qualified for Denver, um, and I am already qualified for the Pro Tour. So, like I said, in the Worlds, which would be, like, you know, crazy to win the entire tournament. Uh, outside of that, it's there's not... Um, not anything that was on my horizon. So I was really able to continue to do more playing to learn and um, you know do more things to expand my range and find the things I'm enjoying in Magic um, more than just trying to, uh, you know, maximize how much I'm winning in Magic, which 
I think is like a really, really good thing for my development as a player and also finding ways to like see the value in that again. Um, as it's some of the stuff that's most tempting to let go of now that I have less time to be preparing for events. Um, like really, really good to reconnect with that. And still like right now, you know, now I'm still deep, deep in on making sure I have a good grasp of Pioneer and I'm understanding things for the Pro Tour. And, you know, I'm starting to work a little bit on just having my deck set out for, uh, for Denver. But all of that is, is stuff where like I feel better about how I'm approaching it now than I would have if it had happened the same time last year. And like a lot of my year was defined by just really getting to love grinding magic at like the local level again, getting to like go out and play RCQs and even having like this season, I think I played like 10 or 11 events before I qualified. And like, even in, in like, I had a bunch of top eights with scam, but I like didn't convert, lost a lot of finals matches, um, you know, qualified and limited, but just got to play a bunch of really, really good magic with my local scene, um, get to know some of the players there a little bit better. Some of the people who are, you know, trying to make a push and, and get to that next next stage for their game too, and then be a part of that journey in terms of seeing them succeed or, you know, playing them in, in matches that really matter to them and to me. And, um, you know, all of that is the stuff that I'm really most grateful for out of the year and probably is like the defining stuff of my year beyond just, you know, obviously like qualifying for the Pro Tour, having a great finish at the RC, you know, having all these like awesome tournaments, getting to like look forward to a Pro Tour as the start of my 2024. Um, but really just the way that I've been able to play Magic and engage with it as much more of a, uh, and connecting with the much more of like, let me play in a way that's something I have fun doing and trust that a lot of what I have fun doing is understanding the game and trying to like look into and like uh you know piece apart what's happening in the games overall and try to take advantage of that um it's just been a really really nice thing and i think that's been like it's one of my favorite years in magic for a long time even like and it's easy to say that when you like qualify for a pro tour but um like outside of that i, I think san diego was like one of the my favorite events i've ever played magic wise um even though that format was it was a good standard format, but people thought it was kind of stale. There was like three decks. Um, I thought that like all the formats I played and really invested myself in, like I was doing it in a way that was really enjoyable to me. And um, I just felt like the games kind of flowed and the weekends were great. And that's like, you know, what everyone really wants out of Magic. It's like way better to be, I'm much happier being someone who's like, you know, I just scrubbed out an RC but had a fantastic weekend than someone who's like, yeah, I like cashed, like lost playing my my match for the pro tour, uh, but all the games sucked and I was really negative about it, which is way worse way to live. So I'm, I'm really happy with where, uh, with where this year landed me. Awesome, man. Uh, I guess uh, I'm next and, uh, man, 2023, uh, you know, I had a really rough personal year, uh, just due to the state of venture capitalism. And so magic in a lot of ways was for the first time in a long time, honestly, like an escape for me. Like usually, you know, you think doing a, a podcast like this for 10 years, um, it, it's become such an ingrained part of my life, but it really was like just getting to jump on to a discord call with, you know, my best friends and like just bird challenges and stuff like that. That is like one of my favorite ways that I got to 
um, engage with magic this year. Um, and I think that there were a lot of things that I'll get into kind of later in the episode about what I, what, it, what 2023 taught me and, and things. But I think that the biggest thing that, that happened for me this year is like one, um, you know, I, I took a lot of time off of magic. Like, um, I was in the finals of a RCQ where I like literally am like calling my wife. I'm like, am I even going to go to Atlanta? Like it's the week before Christmas. And like, you know, at this time I had a job. So like, it was, it was within the realm of possibilities and just like kind of wondering like, what, what is this, what is this year going to look like for me? Um, you know, I, and honestly, like, I, I think I really underperformed, uh, in, in San Diego for, you know, a format that I really enjoyed. And there, there was, there was a lot lacking and it a lot of it has to do with like where my mental was um for a lot of the year and understanding ways to improve that in kind of the second half of the year um my mental's really improved and it's it's really changed you know to the point where you know my my rcqs were were a lot better my um you know my results on online were a lot better and it 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 really was a year of like learning to enjoy this thing and use it as a continue to use it as a tool for improving but also like it's okay to let this game be an escape for you still spencer um that's that's i it's kind of like i don't know word vomity but that is kind of the what 2023 was for me and honestly i owe a lot of the happiness in the game right now to the the folks that i'm getting to coach um and and like mason said i you know he 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 waxed pretty poetic about it, but just helping others improve and reach their goals and and gain a deeper understanding of this thing that's really important to them is is really something that I've gotten to enjoy these last couple months. Um, what we learned in twenty twenty three. Uh, so I'll go first on what what I learned. Uh, one of the one of the coolest things that I got to learn about in twenty twenty three is kind of looking how to look at data a little bit better um you know where where to find data i i talked about this in the discord the other day but i just think that that using data as a tool and different things is really helpful we, we've oftentimes talked about the show like you know looking at sideboards people are like what does that mean why are you looking at sideboards and i think when you can bind the way that like uh you can uh, win percentage matrix looks with how a typical sideboard looks for a deck gives you a lot of information about like, okay, so we believe that the matchup is about this and that the reason that there are this these slots and this many of these types of slots turns into a conclusion that you can come to. Um, and I've gotten a lot better at that to the point where I think my, my ability to pick up a deck and just sideboard with a list off of, off like online has improved where a lot of the times like, I used to look at a sideboard and be like, okay, well, I need to change some cards because, like, I think the match is about this and I think these are the best cards. Or now I can pick up a deck, try it out, be like, okay, here's here are what these cards are for um, and why they're in the deck a lot easier, uh, where it used to take me a while. And I think that that has been a big learning moment is just using data to come to conclusions and, and also taking it from multiple sources rather than just my own testing and my own beliefs 
and you know you know ev everything is a different piece of the buffalo and you just get, get to use the whole thing uh what about you Abe? yeah i think the biggest thing that i learned this year because i did learn a lot um i think the biggest thing i learned this year though was just and it's something i like have always known which is just the power of like when you're really engaged and enjoying what you're doing it's just easier to do it more and like be more successful at it and give put your best foot forward but i really felt that um this year and really reconnecting with just how much i love playing competitive magic and being a part of the scene and everything like just how much more that made it so that i was like loving what i was doing and like I don't like there was this big time uh, around the RC in Dallas where it was just, and, and honestly, most of the Pioneer format for its entire life, where uh, people are like, oh, the mono green deck is just miserable to play against. And it's just like, no, like I love, like I, I was like, I fell in love with playing that deck because everyone else was so like against it. But I was like, we all, like, you need to accept that this is part of the format. Now I'm bringing you that, like, that challenge. And like, I'm getting to be the boogeyman and like, learning to appreciate that and and even just like appreciating the times where I didn't do so well and um, all of that was was really good and also just learning new ways of like approaching understanding a format I did a lot more exploring the fringes of formats this year um, than I have in any year past like and that's something I think I'm gonna try to continue into next year too is just um, like spending more time, playing things that I think aren't going to be the best thing or might not get to that level of being the best thing because you really learn a lot by understanding what of that works. Like it's isolating down a piece of, uh, of the problem. So like, uh, I guess for example, um, like playing out of blue, black Lutri before the RC, because it was like a deck I was maybe considering, like it seemed kind of cool but then they're saying, like, oh, okay, so a deck like this, why does this deck work in the matchups it does? And it's like, okay, this is, like, maybe kind of understand why blue-white's good, too. Um, it's because, like, when the half of your deck that's good is good and all the things are effectively the same, you trade off one for one and you pull ahead, you can beat a lot of matchups, but then matchups like red-black, like, you can't compete with their card for card. But, like, that distilling of it is just, like, more information I have to extrapolate about other things. And that's a really, that's a way that I learn really well rather than kind of having to go through playing all of the good decks against each other is you can learn a lot more by playing a deck that's like in the second tier to understand what about it makes it even compete in that tier um, and like what is keeping it from that. And that was something that really just helped me a lot in how I'm going to approach formats in the future too. And especially when I want to get the, like something that's really helped me over my career is being able to have a strong range Um and understand how to play many of the different archetypes within the context of the format. And I think that doing that more is going to continue to have me have, like, enable me to do that as these formats get, you know, modern is entirely different now than it was three years ago by, like, it's completely, like, impossible to, uh, to like, recognize form. It's unrecognizable compared to where it was. I think, um, I think that they're, like, two keep, oh, sorry, I thought you were done. Oh, no, I, I was basically done, but, uh, you know, it's those things keep on happening. The formats keep on changing, and I can't be relying on the same priors that I used 
like, you know, from 2016 to 2019 or whatever, you know, like all of those things I learned, I'm going to have to keep on relearning and re-evolving. And this is a great way I've, I've found to continue to get that deeper knowledge that I had through how much time I was playing before by focusing less on the best decks and more on the up-and-comers or the, you know, flashes in the pan to kind of understand what it's saying at that moment. That's all. I just, I, I just want to say, like, I think there are two key points to what you just said. One is you are, are playing, one, you're playing things a little bit out of what was your comfort zone, right? And something that I often see players do when they do that is they'll go adjust the sideboard so that they can sideboard in. Like, let's say that you're like a, a player that loves control decks and you pick up, you pick up a mid range deck. And then every time you sideboard, you just sideboard into a control deck. Like you're not expanding your range in those situations. What you're really doing is like, you know, just relying on your heuristics and your skills from another area and applying them here. And you didn't really learn anything. And the other thing is, if you're going to do this and you're going to actually do it right, you have to be okay with losing. Like, you have to learn to be like, in order to learn this, I'm going to lose sometimes. Um, you know, playing playing a worse deck, right, quote unquote, leads is going to do that. Like, you're gonna, your win percentage is going to drop and you need to be okay with that at the, ex, like, the expense of your win percentage and your feelings as you're doing these things. Because, like, it's hard. It's hard to, like, test matches of Magic or... Or play a deck without like feeling some sort of pride in those games, and I don't know. I, I just I really like that, and I, I think that those. If you take anything away from what Abe just said, those are that's what I got out of it anyway. Yeah, and I think it's like it's something that I'm able to do because like I think the starting line of it is where I think you're really getting getting to in terms of like what you were saying just now about picking up a deck and being able to just sideboard how it feels like the deck creator intended is like when I'm playing a lot of these decks, I'm putting a lot of trust in A, myself to vet my sources when I'm like looking at like 5-0 deck list dumps or prelims, be like, okay, I know this player would play something that makes sense and has plans. Let me try to read, like read the language of the deck list and understand how it's supposed to function in these matchups based on how I'm understanding they're going to work and what looks important when I look at it on paper. Like I'm still doing a lot of that work to understand it, but through that process, I feel like I'm understanding a lot better um, and have been able to understand a lot better what makes these things tick from the people who really understand it, right? Like, for me, working with Hammer was a big level up in this for me, was reading, like, Disgruntled Elk deck lists and, um, you know, Crusher Bot deck lists and, uh, like, you know, seeing what Will Kruger was doing with the with the archetype and, like, what the top players are doing and then being like, okay, what is the synthesized idea here? That Like, how is it that they're constructing their list and what are those play patterns going to look like and what's their idea of the matchup? They're saying a lot. Like, they're saying more than you could ever write in an article with how they're constructing their deck, these players who are really thoughtful and play it week in, week out, and learning to understand what that's saying on multiple different... Like, not just archetypes where I've played it a ton and now I'm trying to understand what they're saying on a deeper level but picking up a deck in standard in pioneer that's like or like picking up an aspiring spike deck list and being like okay well what's he tr what's the core of what he's trying to do here and then seeing if i can make it you know better or work differently once you can start looking at a deck list like that which i think is what you were speaking to getting to like more and then getting better at this year spencer like that is so central to being able to to kind of have the process i have right now and uh, it's a really, really great skill that I have. So, Mason, definitely what, want to work on. Mason, what about you, man? 
Yeah, you know, thinking back on this question earlier and sort of burning prepare this morning, I was thinking about like, what am I going to talk about? It's weird where like, like I talked about, a lot of my magic this year is totally different than it's been in the past. And I think my biggest learning moment actually really ties into like game design and coaching and commentary where there's a lot of assumed things about players. And there's some amount of things that we just have to assume, right? We can't stop and explain every little thing, every little time, just, it just isn't functional. At some point yet people have to jump into the deep end. But one thing that I think is important that I really learned this year is that like, sometimes an archetype or a thing hasn't been around in a while. And there are players who have joined in over the last couple of years and they have no experience. And I think the one, and they have no experience and no frame of reference on it. And sometimes you need to like, you can't shortcut that stuff with them. And the way you could, there's maybe something like a mid range check, right? So if I, you know, I'm talking to Abe or whatever, you know, and I say, you know, yeah, this deck is very much like Abzan aggro. I know that, and like Sim Dispenser, like y'all will know what that means in like a shorthand, right? But that's not something that like maybe the other people would know. But they might know like Rakdos midrange from Pioneer as like, you know, an aggressively slanted midrange deck uh, that can play different roles. And so that came up, but it really came up with the Amalia deck, where when working with a bunch of the people that I was coaching for the RC, um, when I picked up the Amalia deck and like actually started playing it after taking a second look at it and trying to, you know, double check my works, play these more tuned versions of the deck. It was like, oh, this deck is like a creature combo deck that can like basically threaten a combo out of nowhere and like creates these weird play patterns for your opponent. And you don't want to always be attacking. Sometimes you want to hold up creatures for core, even though you could get attacking for a little bit. And it just plays the game way differently where, you know, I was talking to someone who uh, I was coaching, who I've coached for a long time. Their name's Robin. And she was having issues. And I, I like shorthanded to Splinter Twin them here, where she was like actually playing a game. And it occurred to me that she didn't know what I meant. And what I meant was, is we're just going to apply a little bit of pressure, hold up this quarter calling. And the moment they tap out, we're going to kill them. And we're just going to send with our one little creature so we can keep up the core and slowly develop. And we're both going to be in this kind of like stuck position. And I think the biggest learning moment for me was like, there's a lot of things that we are shorthanding and distilling. And we've learned in the past, but haven't been as big a part of magic over the last two or three years that are coming back in some ways. And I really want to figure out a way to help people understand that stuff and figure out an easy teachable way for that. So my biggest learning moment is magic is a game that's constantly evolving into what Abe said, you know, modern so different three years ago to now that it's, you know, not even the same format in a lot of ways. It's just totally different. And that is very true. And I think that magic in general is very different. I think a lot of people think about magic like in 2012 to 2015, 16 era. And that is not the game we're playing. Magic is a different game. And I can often tell this when people say stuff like, you look at a three mana, three, three that gives value. Did you look at my state champion play? Uh, That's what you picked those two years. This is literally no, 2012 I, 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 and 20... <laughs> Dang, boomer. <laughs> no, there's just a lot of players... I, I like hate to say it, but like that era of Magic is gone. You know, I was talking to Miriam about this uh, after one of the Apexes, and he was like talking about a creature, and I was like, dude, that's just how creatures are now. Like, we are not playing the same game that we were a decade ago. And that, in some ways, is good, in some ways, bad. But it's like, the game is very different, and you need to think about the game differently. And if you hold on to these archaic way of looking at things, you're going to fall behind. So you need to recontextualize and relearn. So that 
that was a lot of thoughts. I'm not even sure if I did a good job conveying my thoughts there. I feel like I didn't nail it. But that that's a big thing that I really what I learned is that and I really want to figure out ways to help people from there. Because that's something I've really learned a lot over the last, I would say two or three months, and was sprinkled throughout all my time from like, you know, working on MH3, where it's like, oh, like casual players don't really know that. And it's like, oh, that's a great point. I didn't think about it from their perspective. And like, oh, this and that. And like, okay. And then like, you know, I move and I go into coaching and someone's like, I don't understand like why you would play Esper Legends, you know, because it's like a mid-range deck, but like you can't go big. And it's like, oh wait, no, no, no. It's like a super aggressive like slanted mid-range deck that like it's power, it's curve, you know. And they're just things like that that like stick out of my mind over and over again, where I've learned these lessons. And I think as a community, a lot of us have learned them and we shorthand them. But there is this new crop of players, like the COVID babies, basically, that all came up during COVID and they played Magic Online or with a partner or a friend they were able to connect with. And they're really starting to compete now. And they don't have that wealth of experience. And going back and watching old coverage of reading these old articles isn't going to help them because they don't have the context for a lot of them because a lot of them are written in the context of that era. And so they try to read these things and they're like, I don't know. And they kind of bounce off them. So I want to help fix that. That is something that I've learned uh, this year and I really want to work on. Because honestly, to like keep it a buck, I don't think I've improved that much at the game of Magic this year. I think I'm a little bit better than I was 365 days ago. But that wasn't my goal in a lot of ways this year. In a lot of ways, it was like staying sharp, staying on top of things, and working on like game design stuff, working on commentary stuff, and working on coaching stuff. So I could help other people. So I didn't get to push myself maybe as much as I wanted to. I don't think I've like digressed a bunch or anything, but I just don't think that like that wasn't where my head was at for the last 12 months. Let's talk about improving. Um, you know, we didn't do the always improving at the beginning of the show because we wanted, we wanted to take a bigger picture of like the whole year. Abe, why don't you talk to me about your biggest always improving of 2023? Yeah, I think my biggest always improving in 2023, actually I know it's this, is that I've gotten so much better at doing more with less time or even just doing the same as I was doing before with less time. Um, you know, on our episode about setting goals, so like the last episode of the year, last year slash first episode this year, um, like my goal was to get to a point where I felt like my process was good enough for me to have a shot at the Pro Tour and get on the Pro Tour. Um, at all of the RCs and like in spite of the fact that now I have less um, that I'm working with and even now I'm working you know in a smaller group than I was before and like in different circles than I was uh, you know this time last year and still I feel really um, you know I feel pretty good about where my process is and that I'm still able to compete at the level I want to and feel as prepared as I would like to um, for a lot of a lot of the events I play week in, week out, um, you know, in spite of the fact that I may be giving Magic like half as much time as I did before the pandemic. Uh, maybe even less than half. Like maybe like a quarter or like a tenth some weeks. Um, and that's been like a real big change in my process to include um, oddly enough more playing than I was doing before and less uh, like still a lot of studying, but still like less studying than I was doing before to make sure I'm maximizing where I'm putting my hours in both of those, but like really reshaping my process and what it looks like and where I'm allocating my hours to see 
the same kind of output um, in terms of my results and in terms of, you know, my ability to, you know, help bounce ideas off of people who are doing, you know, either more play or less play than me, more theory and, uh, and stuff like that to kind of build a network of balancing my reality I'm experiencing off of, off of them and, and getting more feedback that way and, and, and opening it up uh, a bit to, to having to do a little bit more filtering of what I'm learning people I'm talking to, but uh, just overall having that process kind of feel like it's finally falling into place, um, feeling good about what I'm doing uh, in, for each format in terms of like the the week to week and and also just being able to still like this week in Atlanta was a bit of an exception because of just how tight the timetable was and what time of year it is and everything going on in my life that I felt still a little bit unprepared for that event. But I think that just about everyone felt pretty unprepared for that event in terms of what could happen. And it was just, I was, I was still with, I was keeping up with everyone else in terms of, uh, you know, the feelings on the format and what to be playing and how to even approach all these new problems all at once. Um, and it's something that, you know, if you asked me a year ago, I would definitely tell you I was anxious about and I wasn't like certain I'd be able to do. Um, but it's been a great, great, uh like help to to have done that and and it's definitely a big improvement over where i was uh last year and i'm looking forward to making that even an even more refined and even better process and getting more used to it and solving some things for myself like supply chain issues like oh i need to source all of these cards still i forgot that's a whole like that used to be a full like two days of any tournament prep when i was like going to an opening like okay i've changed decks in the last three days now i need to get every copy of every of like all the cards i need and the extras i might flex to all before my flight. And I was like, well, I can't, I've been working for like two, eight hour days before that. I can't, I can't just do that. Um, so yeah, there's room to improve there too, but just having a whole process from, from start to finish that allows that has been really great. I always say it's best to be process oriented, results driven. I say that all the time at work now. I'm it's just, it's so. by far my biggest, my biggest Spencer quote. I just take it, I take it with me everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that I could that I could improve your workplace. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Mason, what about you, man? I mean, you kind of talked about this, like it was a little bit different, but yeah, I think like the biggest, maybe always improving moment. And I think I talked a little bit about this last year, and I think it is slightly different. So the, something about just like trusting myself to understand what the game plans are and to like play the games a little a little differently and understand that I can and will orchestrate the games to make these cards matter. And there's like two things that really jump out to me. One is small and one is big when it comes to this. The the small one is to be putting Godfarer statue in the monogreen sideboard. And that was a card that like left a lot of people sideboard their wish plans and people would have like Mightstone Weakstone as the answer to Shieldred and stuff and I really sort of believe that, like, hey, a large potential games, you know, like 10, 15%-ish, somewhere in there, your opponents are going to mulligan, and you're just going to have your, like, slam a godfather statue, and they fall behind, and Phoenix started to pick back up near the end. And so that was something where it's like, hey, I know everyone else isn't doing this. I know Bobby isn't doing this. I know they have, like, reasons, but I just don't believe them, you know? And it's like, just because everyone's saying something, I wasn't convinced by their reasons, and I was convinced that, like, I'm willing to basically have a dead sideboard, sideboard slot and a fair percentage of matchups because some reasonable percentage of the time, I just get to slam this card that ends the game. 
or creates all these weird things for my opponent. So adding more dimensions to my deck and giving up stuff and like that cost benefit analysis, I guess is what I'm trying to say. That's like my biggest always recruiting moment is understanding that more and becoming more at peace with like, I'm doing something that maybe looks dumb, but I believe it to be reasonable at worst. And this is what it is. And it's very much like an evolution of reasonable deck gamer where reasonable deck gamer in some ways you could argue. I've often thought this, that it's almost like don't get bullied gamer where it's like, cause when I describe it to you, right. It's like, Hey, I'm going to go up to Abe and Sukinik and they're going to be like, Oh, that deck's reasonable or whatever. You know, another way to look at that is, Oh, you're not going to get made fun of, right? Like you're not doing anything risky. And so I think to my apex gaming invitational four color deck where I played no ring and I played expressive iteration and I played, you know, 60 cards and I had a lot of threes and twos and fours and ones. And I had a lot of really good plans. And ultimately I feel really happy with that deck. There were, you know, two matchups that I decided to basically give up. because I didn't expect them to be super popular with how I thought the metagame was going to go. The metagame did go the way I thought it was going to go. I ended up just playing those decks in my two winning ends and lost. And that's okay. Like, I feel like if I play that tournament a hundred times, I top eight uh, more than my fair share of the times. I feel really good about that deck. I feel really proud of it. And one of my losses was to someone I've coached who worked really hard, but they also rode up with me. And we played a bunch the night before. And it was a thing where they learned in real time kind of why my deck was different than normal and how to adapt to it. And those is like, basically we, we talked about, you know, she made a couple of decisions pretty differently because of those games and building my deck to structure the games differently than how normal four color was at the time. And basically being like, yeah, my deck is really actually strong against cards like Bowmaster and Shieldred. It is not weak to them. Like normal ones are like, see how this is totally different and building my deck in a way to exploit that and to be building a bunch of cards. People just don't play. I think really opened me up and doing things like main decking spell pierces and like pretty high numbers with something and going to like really low numbers to fairy three of things that I normally wouldn't do because those cards are just so strong and so ubiquitous. But I took a shot and understood like I could build and can like mold my deck in such a way and end up not working out. But like, you know, I still had a good finish. I finished like top 16 of the event. And you know, I think I played well in my games for the most part. I like, I learned a real weird rules interaction, um, which was like a good learning moment for me. But at the end of the day, I really feel like I got a better understanding of like, being a reasonable deck gamer, but taking risks with that at the same time, if that makes sense. So I think that was my biggest always improving moment over the course of the year with the little tournaments I did play. And I think actually most of my tournaments outside of Amalia uh, here at the RC, you could actually argue I did this for all of them now that I'm thinking about it uh, in a way that didn't really contextualize in my head until just now. Even my Amalia deck had stuff in the main deck that a lot of people didn't believe in like skews but i knew like skews would be really big in the mirror and i played a bunch of mirrors and like the skews mattered a lot in these game ones where i had this and they didn't you know the normal play pattern of bin your deck returning the ranks back dyna just doesn't work if i skews you so i got it it was a really interesting uh, i gotta ask was the rules interaction have to do with uh, uh indomitable creativity is that what you were mentioning no oh okay <laughs> it's like i don't know that i'd call that a rules interaction I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm talking about uh, Cultivator Colossus. I thought if you Boseju'd a land, there was a moment where the land wasn't in play and the search trigger was on the stack. So uh, and you can, there's actually an Apex that you can watch. I basically attack with a Fury and then I ping this Cultivator Colossus when they have eight lands. So they, they block the Fury with their 8-8. Eight, eight. They're like, block. 
And then I go, ping. I think they thought I had like another Ren and Six or whatever. I didn't. I had a Boseju. And I thought the way it worked is it like would kill it. And I, for some reason, thought I put a trigger on the stack and let them search. And with that trigger on the stack, there'd be seven lands in play. The Cultivator Colossus would die. But it doesn't. It all happens at once, which I probably did know if I had like a whole hour to think about it. But in my brain, I kind of shortcutted to what his moto looked like and I got it wrong. Sure. And I should have just asked a judge, which is a whole nother always improving moment. But it was also a moment where it's like, I feel like if I ask the judge, this person's going to figure out there's something weird with this attack. And if I hit them for six with the Fury, I don't think I'll actually even win the game. Sure. Like I think they should actually just no block because if I did have the second Ren line, it's actually really bad for them. And I was playing like, I think a Bolt that weekend too. So anyways, that was my weird rules interaction cool. uh, that came up during this. That's all. I do like that you're always improving for the year was I started taking deck lists that were nice plates of spaghetti and sprinkling a little Parmesan on them. <laughs> it all circles back. The year of the Parmesan. Parmesan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I took some big risks this year, I think, relative to what I normally do uh, when it comes to deck selection. And I, I feel like I was mostly paid off for it. You know, I didn't, I didn't get to play as much as I normally want to. Um, so. Matt said you know. something to me about Parmesan yesterday. I don't remember what it was, but it made me giggle. Like the theory with the food, um, uh, the theory. But I we were talking, we were talking about something, and he's like, "Yeah, it's, it's Parmesan something," and I was like, "This is too funny." Uh, yeah. So little cheese, little cheese. It's the Donkey Kong. Um, speaking of Donkey Kong, my always improving moment is really interesting, and it, it will feed into our next episode where we talk about goals quite a bit, but. Uh, this gave me my always, the, for those not, you know, listening and not watching, I'm holding a GameCube controller. And this gave me my biggest always improving in Magic this year. Um, so I talked I talked about my mental health this year and, and how it was rough. And one of the things that I've always struggled with, basically, not always, but like the last few years is um, like uh, ladder anxiety and honestly just like online play anxiety. Um, you know, just, just, just like the, the getting from the point where I have a deck list I want to try to actually like sitting down and doing it, um, is really, really hard for me. Um, and, and the, the losses feel so like, I talked about that earlier too. Like the losses feel so much in like my chest and I get really bad anxiety. My, it feels like my chest is twisting and all this stuff. And, um, I I was was playing Smash Bros and they have an online ladder system too. And um one of the characters that I play, Kirul, was like two games or so away from their level of mythic called Elite Smash. And I was like I just am gonna do it. I'm just I'm like I just decided one day when I woke up I was gonna do it. And then I did it. I just like Woke up, went, uh, went like four and five, or something, or whatever was needed for it, and did it. And I, it was one of those moments where I thought about applying it to magic, and since then have applied it to magic, where I'm able to just pull the trigger on things now, um, and getting over something like I'm just going to keep using the term ladder anxiety, even though I think it's a little bit broader than that. Um, it's really hard. And I know a lot of people suffer with it. I know a lot of people that will basically only talk about magic and then go to their, you know, stay in their comfort zone, only go to FNM, um, you know, and not leave 
that space because they have this anxiety about doing things in other ways, doing things differently. They're afraid of those losses. They're afraid of those changes. And for me, the way to get over it was to look at it like holistically. Uh, you know, one of the things that had happened the day before in the case of Smash is I just was like looking at my win percentage with this character over my last my last 50 games. And I was like, if I literally just play, it will just happen. Like it, it, that's that's just how it's going to work. And, you know, when I, in coaching, you know, I've, I've talked to people about rescues and they're like, you know, I'm, I'm top eighting all these events and stuff. And one of the things that I talked about is like, why is that top eight match, that quarterfinals match or that finals match, why is that different to you? Like what's actually happening in your brain that makes it different for you? Because at the end of the day, right, it, like if your win percentage stays at its current rate throughout however many RCQs, you're going to win one. Like it's, it will just happen. And you have to accept that and then treat it like you did round one and round two and round three. So. But being able to do that online for me was really I hard. think there's something. I think there's something that and, you know, if I'm misunderstanding or misconstruing what you um, what you're saying, please feel free to correct me. But there's something that I think really helped me that I've only known re recently verbalized of like what helped me develop such a strong mental game in terms of my ability to play along events and like not really care about, you know, like I was like, I lose round, like I've, some of my best finishes, I've just lost round one. Yeah. You know, and it's like there's, there's an acceptance, especially when it's like, and I, I've never really understood like test anxiety, ladder anxiety, like things where it's like, oh, the fact that there is a final like evaluation of what I did or like this is going to affect my positioning in like real time. Um, never gets to me and it's because I like magic is a game where you win and you lose and I think I see a lot of players who really really love when they win and they want to play magic as a game where they win um, I think for me understanding especially like more so now having magic as a game where I win and I lose um, and I learn from and I appreciate both sides of those games um, makes it a lot easier to engage in positions where like sure like yeah i think i might lose or like i think like sure i might be winning like i'm playing like blue black lutri through leagues on magic online I'm like do i think i'm really gonna 5-0 a bunch of leagues with lutri and like have a great time and like just win all my matches like no i'm probably gonna have to work really really hard to eke out some wins where i get pretty lucky but i think there's something to this deck and maybe i'm wrong um or i think i might learn something or like same thing with playing uh, you know, when I first started playing Hammer, I was like, do I really think this Hammer Time deck is all that it, like, before you had S Sentinel, like, like, is this all, like, there? It's like, no, but, you know, I'm going to learn a lot from losing. Um, and I think that when you love the idea, even when you're playing something where it's like, okay, it's ladder, I'm going to lose position, I'm going to fall and slide back. But the fact of the matter is, that can happen when you're playing to win and when you're playing to lose, and as long as you're appreciating both, I think that's something that really you know, I wanted to share on the show because it's something I really learned to verbalize like pretty recently, but understanding and accepting that it's a game where you win and you lose makes it so much more enjoyable and easy to engage with in all types of ways. Like even when you're playing a tournament, if you're understanding you come in, it's like, yeah, I could just lose every round I play today and still play my best. And that's just what happened. Um, you know, that can happen on ladder, that can happen to your RCQ, but it's, you know, it's what you go out there and that makes you appreciate the times you win so much more when you know 
that like, yeah, you're 60% or 70% win rate in paper or whatever, which is really, really high at a local level, like the 30% there is what makes the 70% so impressive. Um, yeah, so I, I, I wanted to share that perspective. It's so funny because like, I, I don't have this problem going into like a paper event. There's just something really weird about online that hurts my chest. And I think that's like a lack of a person on the other side, like to like in my brain, even though that there is one. But Mason, what were you going to say? I'm going to say, and this is maybe feel free to add this out if you don't want to have this on the show. Do you feel like because you said ladder anxiety almost isn't the right word? Because uh, you feel like it's more than that, right? I almost feel like when I was listening to you talk, it sounds like almost a fear of failure, of failure and being judged by someone you don't know. You know what I mean? Like on the other side of the table, like on the other side of the world, they're like idiot or whatever. When you like get down smash, you know, or like in magic, it's like. They played into my thing, idiot. You know, right? like that kind yeah. of thing. I wonder if that's part of it. Just sort of like, you know. I actually think that it's the reverse. Like the, in my head, like mm. there's not like another person on the other side. And it, the, all of the uh, anxiety okay. is inward. And like uh, me feeling feeling like myself is an idiot. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, so it's like you judging yourself. Yeah. yeah your self-talk is bad. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I, I, talk, I talk about that a lot, you know, having – you know, working on working on self-talk and like it is really, really important, especially in a game where like 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 Ape says that you're gonna that is you are gonna lose. They, you are gonna make mistakes. And I think the reason that it was my biggest always improving is like I've done a really good job in paper magic of doing this, where I don't do these bad I don't have these same bad habits in paper, mm-hmm. but I have to and we'll get into this in the next episode, like having to apply them to online play is, is really important. Yeah. If, I, if you're a listener, by the way, and you're struggling with this too, I really think a big thing is like, talk to yourself like you would talk to others. Yeah. Like, and that's much easier said than done. I'm not just saying I've wiped away your problems, you know, like Mr. Miyagi or whatever. But I do think that's like a really big first step once you also kind of accept like what Spencer is talking about here and like they're just doing just like, if you think you're talking to yourself in a way that you would be like, wow, that person's a meanie or whatever or something like that to someone else, then you need to, like, evaluate, like, wait, why am I treating myself this way? Also, I think that, like, you know, not to get lost in the sauce, but the first step is taking the first step, right? Like, literally Mm -hmm. loading up a league on Magic Online, even though it might... It's so funny. I literally have chest pains right now talking about this. Um, Like, Mm -hmm. even though it might feel like, oh, like, I can't do it, like... I can't do it. Like you can't, like you can do it. And, um, Mm -hmm. the only way to get over these type of things is to, I mean, maybe not the only way, but I think one of the best ways is to confront them. Like, you know, um, I, I, I can speak to what it did for me in smash and how I'm going to apply it now to magic is that I, all of my characters are out of the dumpster GSP now in, in smash. Like I, I don't have a character that's like in the dumpster anymore. And, uh, you know, I can just go load up a character that I'm not very good with. That is my favorite character to play in Greninja and not feel anything other than I get to play Greninja, my favorite character. And I know I'm going to lose some, but like, you know, whatever. And like next, like I, I plan on hitting uh, elite here in the next little while with Wolf and like all of these things, people are like, what is he talking about? But, uh, you know, it, it is, I I definitely cure myself of it in a game that I care about a lot, and I'm going to apply the things that I'm doing 
um, to to magic. And I have in some ways. Like I'm really able to like jump into events on arena and jump into ladder and have no hard feelings in either of those at all right now. Um, and now the next step is, is kind of magic online. So, uh, let's talk about our favorite formats. Let's let's round this thing out with some format talk. Uh, Mason, what was your favorite format this year and why? Modern Horizons 3 FFL. <laughs> I like to tell you what now. Um, unironically, that was the most fun magic I played this year. I, I struggle with this a lot because, like, Modern was my favorite format by, like, a lot. I, I find Pioneer, like, my win rate in Pioneer is, like, very high or whatever, but, like, it's fine. And, like, I, I like we talked about the show, right? Like, I really don't like the I have to enjoy something to do well with it mindset. Like, it is, like, that is a real thing. Like, people don't feel engaged. They don't try. But I do think, like, to what Abe said, like, well, I, like, learn to love these things about green. I feel like I kind of did that with pioneer a lot i kind of like ate my vegetables so you know i don't know i think pioneer is a really awesome fnm format and like i went and played fnm at my lgs yesterday and i played my yorian amalia deck and it was sweet and i had a great time and you know it was super fun and i played cool games versus a bunch of reckless decks and it was a fun time or whatever but like modern is so much more deep and has so much more interactions and really like that and you know I think my favorite one was really getting to explore a brand new format. Like it's like when a standard set releases week one standard is often typically really fun. Having a horizon set release and being like work on this was the most fun. So modern is my answer, but like, I understand that my experience with modern this year is very different than the average person's also because like I played like one RCQ and was finished and all the seasons or whatever. So I played like not much against scam and I didn't play many modern tournaments. So like, I understand that maybe I'm in the minority for like nine reasons. <laughs> it's so weird. Modern uh, Modern Horizons <laughs> three modern was my favorite format. No, I'm just kidding. Uh <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be because Mason worked on it. <laughs> I made a joke. Um I made a joke to, to Quentin about uh about it the other day because I was he was he was talking about how much he didn't like Lord of the Rings. I was like, well, don't worry, man. Mason mm -hmm. fixes all the problems in, in this, <laughs> this year. I made sitting in a bottle, but for Mordor. <laughs> um, I, you know, this was what was funny when I was already writing the show notes. I was like, I don't know how I'm going to answer this because, like, there were a lot of good magic formats this year. Like, I, I know that a lot of people had a problem with, like, the ring and Orgus Bowmasters and stuff. But I did, I did actually think that. There, I don't think that there was a quote-unquote bad modern format this year. And that's impressive. Like, I, I think that, like, Scam was overrepresented. And, like, I think that Grief, grief is on the short list of still getting banned. But um, I don't know. I, I, I really enjoyed modern. I really enjoyed it before Lord of the Rings. Uh, you know, my favorite deck being the best deck is always fun. Um Standard went through some iterations this year um, that I think were were good. I'm really glad that, like, it, it's funny because, like, I think the formats were good, and then I still am happy with the bannings that happen pretty often. So, like, for example, I'm really glad Invoke Despair is not in Standard. I think the card 
like as as awesome as that standard format was, and I think ABU enjoyed it a lot too. Invoke Despair is just like miserable in the format, like making planeswalkers look like jokes and making all the games like it made it just made the games weird. Um, it crowded out a lot of things. Yeah, it was just awkward. But like the format was fun, and I think that we've gotten to the point. And I, I think that this, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, you two know more about this, but, like, that is kind of the point of magic design right now, is to make the games fun. And I, I do think that they have achieved that. Um, go ahead. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to jump in and say my favorite format I played this year was actually just standard for the RC in San Diego. That was... And I've said this a lot. That was probably the most fun I've had playing the Magic, like, round to round um, in that RC. Out of, like... It's, it's, like, easily top five out of tournaments I've ever played in terms of, like, just how much I enjoyed playing my deck, how much I enjoyed, like... Especially in open deck lists for that one, like, because there was so much small... So many small variations that could be made in how you were constructing your 75 for a lot of the archetypes. Playing the game of knowing what it is they're going to do and adjusting um, was just really cool and really fun. Um, and the gameplay was also pretty good. Uh, I do think that... like, I'm glad that the changes to the format that happened did happen. Um, especially as we're sitting here with... Like, it would have been, what, more Fables and Invoke Despairs for no and Bankbusters for another year with them expanding standards, standard size. But, uh, yeah, I think they did. And it was a format where, like, I even remember being at the RC and saying, like, I hope this is an event where everyone who played it and, like, really tried and, like, you know, gave it their all to to, to figure out, like, a, a list and, like, you know, try to try to succeed here comes out of it with like an excitement about playing standard again in the future because I think they really nailed it in terms of like like you're saying invoke despair is really really strong and like kind of makes it so you can't play like a top end of expensive planeswalkers which is like what a lot of people like to do and like you kind of have to play like fable mirror picker is so good because it mitigates invoke despair on both ends and also like it's an enchantment and a creature yeah and also helps you, like, find the things you need. It's just, like, so strong in the context of things. And some of that was, like, kind of unfortunate. But overall, like, when you actually sat down and were playing the games, they were really, really engaging and fun. And there was a lot of, like, even within, like, just the pillars of, like, okay, if you're playing a red-black or maybe red-black X mid-range deck, like, there was a large spectrum of how you could approach... But like the games from either being like a more controlling counterspell based Brixis deck with like Corpse Appraisers to being like a more lean red black deck or something in the middle. Um, you know, Esper Legends could go on the range from being like a more low to the ground aggressive build to kind of going a bit taller and, and higher in terms of like playing Liliana's, which was like the, the best thing for them that weekend. Um, and then being a little bit more controlling, you could like play this really, really inevitability based mono white deck. Um, or even play that style of deck, but then make it still pretty low to the ground and play more like creature-based threats that are evasive to the removal in the format. And there was a lot of variety across the arc. Like there was maybe two or three color-wise archetypes you were playing, 
but across those, the the variety and depth of the gameplay was really good. And I really look forward to what standard's going to look like in the coming years, especially as we have RC seasons. And once we get past this kind of growing pains year of, well, these cards weren't designed to be in the same environment as those cards. So there's like some unintended overlap and things are a little weird. Um, but once we get past that and into like next the next year and the next year of, of standard where they're designing for it to be a three-year format, I'm really, really excited because I think they've been doing... It's really frustrating when I hear people complain about play design, and this is just a, a little aside, when primarily the formats people play are ones that they do not design for. <laughs> they design actively for standard and for limited. If you do not booster draft the set that comes out and you do not play standard, then you really don't have much of an opinion on what it is they do at their job for like 90% of their day. So I love that. But when you look at the things they do for that 90%, they're some of the most fun things coming out right now. And some like when you really dig down into it and everyone collectively did for that standard season, which has not happened since and had not happened in a long time up until then, everyone engaging in the format, like a large like mass of competitive players all playing it, it was a lot of fun. And everyone that I talked to about it was like, I like before Atlanta, I was talking with my friend Joel, who we had like played very similar 75s of red black at, um, at San Diego. And we're both kind of like lost as to what to do uh, for Atlanta. And he was like, I wonder if they'll just let us all play the same decks we registered at San Diego. Like, can we all just handshake and be like, all right, we're playing standard circa like, you know, spring this year. Cause it was just that good. It was just that fun. So that's yeah, that's I, that's my feelings on all of it. Yeah, I feel like a thing, and this is like a, a me thing. I believe that like having lots of room for interchangeable pieces is a lot of fun because if you think of like the three main player demographics, there's Timmy Tammies who really want to have an experience, and for them, having different toys that do similar things is a pretty cool experience. For Johnny Jennies, who are like brewers, having different options creates new doors, even when they're similar because they overlap in different unique ways. And then for Spikes, it creates like this moment to metagaming at an edge. And I think on average players actually, there's a large number of players, even spiky players, who don't love playing like what everyone else is playing. They want to have a little spice. So having like lots of cards that compete at the same mana value and do similar yet different things, I think really opens the door and does what Abe's talking about. Or like, you know, there was like, various builds of Esper, and there are right now, you know, and there's, like, various kill spells and various ways to build your white deck and your blue deck and your black deck, and, like, that is really cool. Like, even in standard right now, you know, the mono-blue tempo deck looks pretty similar, but, like, there's a lot of different blue counter spells for a creature you can play. Like, Essence Scatter works with your Hottie Gym. The new one, I think, Deep Chill, is also a cancel for four mana for anything else. So, like, oh, it's two mana for counter a creature, four mana for anything. That's an interesting decision point. Is that worth the one mana on my Essence Scatter? Which I play Essence Capture, which I ended up personally playing a split of last year because I wanted to have, you know, my like haughty gins be bigger in the mirror and like my ledger shredders and my delvers get a little bigger. And so, like, there was like a lot of in my uh, the gin thingy, the dinosaur. Uh, so like, there's a lot of different things where it's like, oh, there are reasons to do these different things. This is a really cool experiment. And you know, to circle back to Spencer's point, you know, of, like it's been really fun. I think, yeah, like having options is fun. Like, when I, as a game designer, Mason really hates when you make something that is the best of something. Like, Ragavan is the best red creature 
and it is really hard to make a creature better than Ragavan without really pushing it. So there's no room above Ragavan. I think a cool thing about Sandra is there's a lot of room for the cards to like basically be the same or like slightly move. This one's like 0.1% better. And there's like a lot of reasons for it to be different. And there's a lot of room to design cards around and above and below these cards. And the power level being smaller, lower, I think helps that. And so I think Sandra is really great. I wish I could have gotten to engage with that format more. I'm excited to engage with this new format. I bought my first standard deck for the RCQ seasons. I'm very excited. And my last little thing I'll say is, is that they design so far in advance that like it is hard. And I think we will start seeing stuff like Pioneer get thought about more, but like it's just tough. And I really agree with what Abe said. It's like people go like, wow, we're just doing such a bad job. And it's like they're eating at a different restaurant, you know? It's like, God, this McDonald's sucks and they're in a Burger King. And they're just like, <laughs> my McFlurry like doesn't not, taste good at all. <laughs> this Taco Bell is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Take the bite of the Big Mac. Right? <laughs> you know, it's just like you're not playing. It, it's just not the thing. So my, my answer is Pioneer. By I, the I get way. worked up about it. Yes, I think nice. I think Pioneer was my favorite format this year, uh, mostly because like green decks were good. No. <laughs> A lot of interrupts. Yeah, I love that's it. the most surprising thing of the RC. I don't think we talked about that enough last week, Abe. Lanarelf's not coming out the way I thought it would, even like in an Amalia world. So, well, I mean, just. A quick three seconds on that. You do realize that yeah. every card in the Amalia deck is Land Realms, and the only spells you have any yes. difficulty casting have Convoke, and the same thing in Boros Convoke, too. Yeah. So there's actually a lot of Land Realms. <laughs> I, I agree that the free spells and the things that reduce the spell costs are still the best things in Pioneer. I'm just saying, I got these cool Elvis entire... Mystics with an old border, and they banned my deck, and I want to play with my cool old border. Anyway, we're moving. We're moving. Penny uh, right. B asks yeah, let's wrap it. Let's a Patreon question. Uh, we're just going to pitch this one to Mason alone. Uh, Mason, Patty B asks, uh, how do you determine metagame for large tournaments like the RC? For example, on the last episode, Mason expected X and Y percentage. I'm curious how that calculation works. Yeah, so I think a lot of it is, one, realistic expectations of what players are playing. So sometimes you listen to people talk and they're going to be, they say stuff like, yeah, the whole room's going to be Rakdos. And then you ask them, what does that mean? And they say like 20%, which is notably not even half the room. So sometimes players say something that would mean another. Personally, I think a lot about like how strong does a deck seem to be perceived and how strong I think it actually is and kind of average in the middle there. And a lot of this is about getting rough guesstimates. So I, I can like recount a bit of this for the RC for you. I thought Phoenix was the clear deck that was one of the strongest and the most well-tuned and just needed to change up its interaction. So I thought Phoenix, I had somewhere for me to pull up my computer, but I thought Phoenix would be between 10 and 12%. And I figured it would be underrepresented because it was such an obvious choice and you can attack Phoenix. And Phoenix has shown historically it struggles being attacked. Rakdos, I thought would be anywhere from about 15 to 20%, really depending on what you call like anti Rakdos versus like traditional Rakdos, because it is typically the most played and popular deck it is quite good, and a lot of people, I think, incorrectly uh, assess that their traditional Rakdos deck would be very good against the Amalia deck. Um, and as that kind of like popped up, along with like Convoke, like for some reason, Shieldred Rakdos players think they're good against Convoke, which is just like what. But anyways, that's a different conversation. So I'm not going to go through all of it, but like I, that's the kind of the process, right? Where I'm thinking about what are people doing and sort of how they show up, right? And I look at like past data, and I understand that like people can't change decks wholeheartedly. And it's just really hard to move. 
And so if your deck is still pretty good, people are going to kind of, some percentage are going to lean towards that. So I don't think the numbers are going to move dramatically unless something happens in the metagame that really changes it and there's time to adjust. So for example, the Amalia deck happened a week before. It's really hard to adjust whole decks. It's really easy to change sideboard and flex lock cards. Um, and what we saw is that, you know, like, Blue Eye Control had a similar representation than what's happened the last couple of RCs. It just performed better because its position was better and, like, the deck has changed. But, like, I'm curious, like, what a RC would have looked like if it was two weeks from now, but we had had, like, a Grand Priest, per what Abe said last week, we had a Grand Priest-style event, how would things change? So when I'm doing this, I'm really thinking about, like, what do I think is good? What do I think players will bring? And sort of coming to a rough estimate and thinking about, okay, you know, I have this information, what does that mean? And if I think there's like a lot of decks are going to be a lot of the format, um, I might stray away from a deck that suffers with that. A good example of this might be like, I believe people really like interactive decks and people like a lot of people, especially uh, RCQ grinders, like exchanging resources. So if my deck is really weak to that, um, I might want to try to fix that with some cyborg cards or something, or maybe not play the deck. Because if, you know, we go off that, like, percentage, I guess, roughly 30% of the room would have been one-for-one one decks, right? Like Rakdos and Phoenix. And so if my deck really struggles against that, I might not want to play it. A good example of this is Heroic. So that's kind of like a rough, quick breakdown, you know? Uh, one of the other ways to support the show is to leave a YouTube comment. Uh, we just, uh, short on time today, but I just want to give a shout-out to Keegan MTG for the great story in the YouTube comments. Our self-proclaimed number one youtube fan thank you um if people uh let's see here sorry now i'm getting lost uh if you want to join the conversation we have uh he's going to be a public discord our patreon discord which is always popping uh become a patron of five dollars or more to get access to that the youtube comments like keegan uh as well as just hit us up on twitter at ccmtg but always, don't forget, you can like, subscribe, review, best ways to support the show. Uh, where can people find you, It You can find me over at twitter.com slash more nothings. Uh, you know, it's where I tweet about magic and things and stuff. It's where you can find most things. Uh, that's, that's really all you can find me at these days. How about you, Mason? You can find me at twitter.com at Mason E. Clark. If you want to reach out for coaching, you can do it there or at my email, Mason E. Clark at gmail.com. Find me at twitch.tv slash the Mason Clark. I'm actually streaming some more over these holidays while things are a little slower. So that's going to be fun. And you can find me on, uh, I'm sorry, you can find me at, I'm going to start saying when I'm going to events. So because people are like, oh, I didn't know you were here. I want to meet you. I'll be at Cincinnati SCG January 5th to 7th, which this episode should be coming out like two weeks before. So I'll be there. I'll have wristbands. I'll be the one that looks like me and is having a good time. Spencer, where can people find you? You can find me at Heasy Game on Twitter. You can uh, reach out to me at SpencerHowland at gmail.com or uh, HeasyMedia at gmail.com if you want coaching. Um, that is going to do it for this week. we got to go because we got another episode to record. Bye!
magic, magic, magic.